All right, Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. I want to just pause there for a moment. Let's talk about what manifest means. It means that it is plain or recognizable. It's plain or recognizable. It's easily identifiable as something that is contrary to godliness. Now, I'll just say that it isn't always on display. The works of the flesh and those sinful deeds that we engage ourselves in may not always be on display. We hide what we are ashamed of. We don't, as, we, as Jesus would talk about in John chapter 3, we don't bring that to the light because we don't want, to, uh, want it to be exposed that those are our evil deeds. In Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5, verses 11 through 13, he says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. So we have this shining in of thing of of the reality of the spirit of the direction and leading and, and, and instruction of the word of God into our lives, being that shining light that instructs us, Hey, this is right. Or this is wrong. We talked about that. in so we looked in Hebrews in many respects uh, because we had this idea that they should have been able to teach. They should have been able to instruct and disciple, but there was, it was still needful for them because they were unskilled in the word of God that somebody would be teaching and discipling them. They weren't ready yet. So we have to understand that the word is the standard. Uh, there's no question about what is a work of the flesh. It's certain. It's, it's plain or recognizable. And certain things are obviously, they're very clearly not of God. They're part of our fleshy tendencies, the, the tendencies of man's sinful nature. And even if the outward expression would normally be considered good, it will be evident that the inward motivation is not led of the Spirit. And let's just talk about that for a moment, because there are lots of good people in the world, and those good people aren't born-again people. They are not adopted into the family of God. They're not part of the body of Christ. They are separated from. We have this description uh, by Jesus where they say, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things in your name? And he says, depart from me. I don't know you, you workers of iniquity. They're doing good things, and what they are doing on the outside looks like a good thing, but the inward motivation, the heart is revealed, what is made manifest. It is unrecognizable that their motivation, what is pushing them forward in their efforts, are fleshly motivations. We find that the Word of God is our standard for all of this. The serpent who claimed to be offering something that would fill out the knowledge that God had given to Adam and Eve. Uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Let's look in verses, uh, verses 1 through 6. We have this, obviously, the description of the fall, of what happened there, the temptation of of Adam and Eve and their eventual committing of sin. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of, the, of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
And when the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and even and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So the you look at the temptation here, and there is this idea that, listen, God is withholding something from you. Let us give you this fulfillment, this better, fuller, bigger knowledge, which is somewhat the what the Judaizers have been doing. We've talked about this as we've gone through Galatians, that here is Paul's gospel, and it's simple. This is the gospel that God has recorded from, the, from Genesis 3.15 all the way through, and it's very simple. Yeah, we had these Judaizers coming in and saying, listen, Paul is ignoring all of this other information. Let us take you to the Old Testament and show you all these rites and rituals that God would prescribe that we should engage in. Forgetting that those things were only designed to be uh, a looking forward to and a foreshadowing of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And, and as Paul has laid out the idea that we are not justified by obedience to those things, nor have we ever been justified by that, we've always been justified by faith. So there's this salesmanship of this other knowledge. And it's exactly the temptation that we find Adam and Eve submitting to. The Judaizers are claiming to have a more complete gospel than Paul by adding works to it. Whether it's the serpent here in the garden or the Judaizers, each one of those adds to the Word of God. And as it adds to the Word of God, we have to realize that it isn't just a small thing. It is actually contradicting what God Himself has said what God himself has recorded, and what God himself has preserved for our benefit. And as we walk in the leading of the Spirit regarding the truths of God, we will not fall into that trap. In Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me, Hebrews 4 verses 12 through 13, speaking about the Word of God and its power in our lives, we read Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, the idea here is that we have all of these things, whether it's the soul and the spirit. The, I'll just tell you that I believe that the soul and spirit are two separate things. Uh, from our practical standpoint, they're, they're viewed very similarly, but the Bible seems to distinguish between them. Uh, but the soul and the spirit, joints and the marrow, uh, the, these things that we can't, uh, with absolute precision, divide and, and, and come through. But the Word of God looks at all of this, and it, and it cuts through those things with surgical precision. Here is this good thing that you're doing, but here is the motivation behind it. Not only that, but there is this manifestation, same word, this revealing. It's plain and recognizable to God, the author of the Word of God, 
the Holy Spirit himself who is indwelling us, we are naked and opened unto him. There's nothing that we're hiding from him. We may be able to pull one over on our less discerning friends and family about the good works that we may hold near and dear, those things that we put out there for people to see and acknowledge, but God's not fooled. Not only that, but his word, I'm convinced, not only does it manifest those things in us as we use it for the mirror that it should be, and we let it have its way with us, but I think it's instructive, and I think the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding you and I in the discernment and the understanding of the thoughts and motivations of other people. That we might be discerning, that we might be watchful, that we might understand how we might protect our families, how we might point out things that this is something we need to be concerned about and be watchful for. Now, I'm not going to have the same unhindered access to the hearts and motivations of people around me as the Holy Spirit, as, as our Creator does, but I'm convinced that the Word of God will preserve me, and as the Spirit leads us in that, and we walk in obedience to the things that God has recorded in His Word by the inspiration and, and revelation of understanding of the Holy Spirit, that will be preserved from those things, that will be protected from those things. Now, gives us this list. If we go back to Galatians chapter 5, and I want to look at each one of these, Not, and we're not going to take a ton of time looking at each one, but let's look at these. Uh, this list. If you study throughout the, the New Testament, you'll find multiple lists of the works of the flesh or of sins, or these are these, and they're very similar. Um, they're not obviously identical, but they're very similar. Um, so he says, first, of the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery. Now, that, that's an illicit connection to someone other than your spouse. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, as God is giving the Ten Commandments, he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Second, we find fornication. That's illicit connection outside the bounds of marriage. Um, it's the Greek word pornea. So this can include uh, adultery. And in many of those other lists that we find in the New Testament, they're, they're one and the same. They're lumped together. But it also includes all kinds of, of sexually charged perversions. Um, pornography, prostitution, those things would all fall under this, uh, under that term fornication. He continues on. He says, uncleanness. Now, uncleanness literally just means the opposite of purity. So it does not equal God's model of intimacy. Homosexuality falls into that category. It's outside. It's opposite. It does not fall within the model that God has established. In Romans chapter 1, for example, Romans chapter 1, verse 24, as God is here discussing uh, those who would suppress truth, who are unwilling to acknowledge him. He says, God gave them up to uncleanness, the same word, through the lust of his own, their own heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And there's some description there of those sinful acts. It, lasciviousness is the next one that he lays out here, and that's just simply unbridled lust. In, in other words, 
I'm unwilling to contain it. I'm going to run to that, uh, and I'm unwilling to even work and fight against it. That's, that's the description of lasciviousness. He continues on. He says, idolatry. And as we've studied through and we've identified idolatry looking uh, through the book of Hosea, it's anything that displaces God as our only, quote-unquote, object of worship. God is not an object. But for lack of terms, right, we're going to replace him with some object. We're going to replace him with some created thing. And in, in Romans, we find that that's, in Romans chapter 1, that's the description that they would worship the creation rather than the creator. We would put anything that is in creation into the place that God should hold by himself and without any equal or rival. Anything that displaces God as our only object of worship is idolatry. All kinds of things fall into that category. Potentially anything or any person or any service or any work could become an idol. Witchcraft. Witchcraft. Uh, this is from the Greek word pharmakia. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to define it this way. It is any real or pretend league with Satan. And I realize that that's not always the way that it gets defined, but I think that would it would include uh, it would have varied manifestations. It would look differently in different places, but it definitely includes drug use, things that alter the mind's perception. Fall under this term witchcraft, and we find that throughout many cultures. We find it uh, instructive in the book of excuse me in the in the Bible itself, uh, but not only that. What the Bible conceives of as witchcraft includes consulting with familiar spirits, right? So uh, I'm going to somebody to talk to my dead uncle or whoever it may be. We find King Saul was in trouble because he went to the, to the person that could consult with the familiar spirits, and they got Samuel, and he had this conversation with Samuel, and Samuel was like, you're in big trouble, bud. We have the soothsaying or fortune-telling falls under that category of witchcraft from a biblical perspective, all kinds of things that are quote-unquote magic. There's this heavily demonic link related to all of those things. So it's a, it's a real or pretend league with the devil. Devil is, is how we're going to define witchcraft. Next, he says hatred. And that word hatred, it, means, it literally means hate or hostility. This includes, and this is important for us as believers to realize, this includes even hostility, uh, hatred toward our enemies, those who have sinned against us. That's not where our hearts should be. That's not how we should respond. In Romans chapter 12, for instance, Romans chapter 12, verse 20, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. We don't revile those who revile us. We don't uh, reject those who would reject us. We deal with them, as we find in, in summing it up in, in Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loves another has fulfilled the law. So we have this idea that, that hatred, we're not to hate others. Variance is the next one in the list. Variance simply means contentious disposition. These people are looking to cause an argument or to cause controversy. 
They find pleasure in doing so. We've all met those kind of people. We probably, without knowing it, have even been those kind of people. It is not something that we should be doing. It is a fleshly motivation. It is something that is dishonoring to the Lord. Next, you have emulations. Emulations, that's an impassioned jealousy of another's honor or happiness. This is, this is above and beyond just, uh, I'm impassioned, I'm upset, I'm really bummed out by somebody else's honor or happiness. Wrath, that's vengeful passions. I'm looking to execute my wrath upon you. That's not our place. The Bible tells us to give to, to the vengeance is God's. That's his uh, realm to deal in. Uh, next is strife, which is which is disagreeable or factious. Uh, disagreeable is probably not the best way to say it, but uh, we see strife in the concerted efforts of political parties to divide. Right? We can't even have a conversation with that group over there because they're so far uh, dislike us. Right? Very factious. We're going to divide ourselves into different factions. We see this uh, in a lot of anti-Christian agendas whether it's evolutionary uh, science and all of those things being pushed and being anti-Christian, they, they can't even have the conversation and they're unwilling to even entertain it. And part of the reason it is is because there's got to be some conviction of the spirit that, boy, we're wrong. We see it in the LGBTQ communities. This anti-Christian agenda is where we, we tend to find and identify this factious, this strife, the most in the world today. Um, we see it in the church too, however. And in the church, it, it generally crops up around very minor things or things that, you know, things that churches split over. We're going to make these two different factions about the carpet or about the color of the drapes or, or what style of music we're going to have. None of those things ultimately are that important that they should divide the body of Christ, yet there we are. I'm not going to, Strife would say that I'm not going to show kindness if you aren't agreeable to my position. It becomes a very big occasion for the flesh. Next, we find sedition. Uh, that's seeking to cause disunion or schism. Uh, we would find those who would uh, those false teachers described in the book of Jude, for example, who are creeping in, they are seditious. They are trying to cause division, schism. Let's, let's splinter off some of these people as our own. And in some respects, that's what's happening here in the book of Galatians. But these Judaizers, we, we find it elsewhere that there are those uh, in the New Testament that are saying, I, well, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas. Right? Not only are they causing strife because of the factions that they're holding. Well, I listen to this pastor on the radio, and you listen to that pastor on the radio. and These seditions, these, these schisms, these divisions as a result uh, of that kind of thing. Heresies, uh, this is bad doctrine, but I, but I want to clarify that. Bad doctrine. These are a matter of man's choice. They're not based on the Word of God. I choose to believe, even if this is at odds and it is contrary to the Word of God. That's what is being described here as heresy. 
So here we have this doctrine of justification that throughout uh, justification by faith throughout the book of Galatians has been established. Paul is taking great care to lay that plainly before us. Yet there would be those, and that's why it's heretical, it's a heresy to teach some other gospel. It's not true. And we have to make a choice. I'm going to believe what God says, or I'm going to choose to believe something else. The Bible would say, let God's word be true and every man a liar. It is the standard by which we hold all things. Next, envying, which is related to emulations, but it's somewhat different. It's a grief at the good of others. Uh, it's, a, it's a personal uh, hardship as a result of them uh, having received something good. Uh, murders, that's destruction of life without biblical cause. Um, thou shalt not kill. Right? We're not just out there needlessly, um, needlessly taking uh, people's life. We're, we're just not, murders are exactly what they sound like. I had a discussion um, at work not very long ago, and we were talking, we were talking about this very thing, and someone was making the case that we shouldn't kill anyone for any reason for, or anything. And I said, well, that's not 100% true. I said, the Bible says that we should kill people for certain reasons. Uh, so what we have to understand is that there has to be biblical cause. There has to be biblical cause. So destruction of life without biblical cause is a good definition of murder. Uh, next, we find drunkenness. That's the excess to the extent that the body and the mind are overcome. When we think of drunkenness, typically we identify that with alcohol, and that's generally what's conceived of here in Scripture, although I think that there are other things. Uh, there, so, so there's obviously some overlap with witchcraft on that and, and drug use, those things that would alter the mind. But drunkenness is excess to the extent that the body and mind are overcome. We're not in our right mind. We're not thinking clearly. We're not, uh, we're not discerning because we, we've submitted ourselves to something else. And I wouldn't limit it to simply alcohol. Uh, revelings, uh, carousal, uh, literally it's the excess of letting loose. There's nothing wrong with taking a break, with putting your feet up, with enjoying uh, some of the slower pace of life, or even celebration of something. I think we should celebrate, but the excess of letting loose, the excess of celebration, to the extent that, uh, you know, you think of uh, like Mardi Gras and, and the excess of uh, the carousal that happens in those celebrations, that is reveling. It is not God-honoring. It is chaotic. It has nothing to do with celebrating uh, anything. It's simply an opportunity to indulge the flesh. And then he concludes this list. He says, and such like, which is just general excess. Those things that would, the other thing that it indicates is that this is not a complete and a total list of all the works of the flesh. There are other things that would come to play here or, and other things that would, that would fall into this category. And so as you go through and we study the New Testament and we see these things that we put off and and, and many of those are similar lists of works of the flesh, sinful 
indulgences that we would engage in, um, or they're simply labeled as works of the flesh. And when we might find something that isn't in this list, well, it's captured there in this such light. A general access, a general uh, running to something outside of the bounds that God has established for it within his word. These are works of the flesh. They are motivated to gratify and satisfy whatever lusts we have. And if we understand lust and temptation from a biblical perspective, as described there uh, in, in, boy, I drew a complete blank. Help me out, guys. Is it John's epistle, First John, or is it in James? I think it's in James. It's going to say James, but I wasn't 100% sure. James, let's see. Yes, James chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, begin, I'm actually beginning in verse uh, 13. It says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. But when lust has conceived, in other words, when we engage in the gratification and the satisfaction of that lust, when lust has conceived, as it is phrased here, it brings forth sin. It brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. This is contrary to, this is not walking in the Spirit. This is living outside of uh, obedience to God. This is living outside of uh, a clear representation of the gospel of Christ. This is something that because we have this dichotomy within us, this two dual nature where we are filled with sin, we have this indwelling sin in us, that's our sin nature. Though it's put to death, though it is crucified, though it is uh, here, we are no longer slaves to serve it. We have the choice now to serve God and be His servant, as we read in Romans chapter 6. But when we stop serving Him, we fall into this other law. This other law that, that is in our lusts of our flesh. As I said earlier, as we began, that Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. You're going to make a decision and a choice. Where am I going to align my allegiance today, in this moment, in this circumstance, in this moment where I am heated and I'm upset? Where am I going to put my allegiance? Am I going to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of my flesh because I'm angry, because I want to act out, I want to satisfy the lust that I have? Or am I going to serve Christ? Am I going to represent Him? Am I going to honor the gospel and the principles that are found in the Word of God in the way I conduct myself in this very moment? I want to talk about these, these sins that, that we've just listed here categorically. It's harder to probably identify a motive and all of those things associated with them individually, but what we find is that there are categories of these sins. And so, for example, we were looking at the last few there, we saw drunkenness, revelings, and such like. These are sins of excess. 
is giving over of ourselves to the flesh. In other words, I've just given up. I'm not even going to try to fight against it. I'm not even going to uh, perceive that there is a choice before me that I might serve the Lord. I choose to not fight against the lust of the flesh, but rather choose to succumb to them. And just in that using drunkenness as an illustration and that one uh, item there, we, we find that in Proverbs uh, chapter 20, Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Now, what we need to understand and what I want, to, want, want you to take away here, this is not, a, in my understanding of Scripture, this is not a prohibition. I don't think that there is a prohibition that we shouldn't drink any alcohol whatsoever. I personally don't, but I know plenty of people who do, and I don't think that it's sin. Drunkenness is clearly labeled as the sin. Going to the excess where we are outside of our mind or outside of the control, where we have simply given up and I am yielding myself to the indulgence of my flesh, that is the sin. And every person is going to have to work out where that line is crossed for themselves. Uh, in many respects, just staying away from it is the easiest way to avoid it. Joseph himself gives us a good example there because here is Potiphar's wife saying, hey, lie with me. And what does he do? He flees the temptation. He leaves it completely behind. So if it's ever an issue, that's probably the tack you should take. But I want you to notice that it is deceiving. It is not wise. It doesn't bring us to anything. You know, people talk about well, they're they're better they're better socially with a little alcohol. I, I know plenty of people that that's I've had that discussion with them, and it is deceptive. They think that they're better, but they're not. It's an exhibition of their foolishness, and and their flesh is manifest to everybody around them. We can train ourselves to be better socially without it. We chose to. We just choose not to. We use that excuse that I want to be good with people, that I want to be engaging with people, that I might even be uh, you know, better at presenting the gospel. We use that as an occasion for the flesh. I have to be careful. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, I, I don't think that consuming alcohol is a sin, but being drunk with wine, going to that excess is clearly uh, conceived in Scripture as sinful. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of rioting, speaking evil of you. So here's another list in the New Testament, very similar uh, content to the works of the flesh, but here's what I want you to see. I mean, there's this excess of wine, clearly, but he says, they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess. 
There's a line in the sand. There's a distinction between the believer who tends to say, listen, I'm going to stand with God and walk in the spirit and those who are not going to. There's no confusion. The way that we conduct ourselves, keeping these sins of excess, in other words, whether we're going to celebrate, well, we're not going to celebrate riotously. We're not, we're not going to carouse when we do this. That if we choose to consume alcohol, it never comes to the point of drunkenness. It's never a stumbling block for anyone. We, we have this line in the sand where we represent Christ in everything that we do. In Matthew chapter 23, if you'll turn there with me, Matthew 23, verses 23 through 26. Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. You blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but wherein they are full of extortions and excess. Thou blind Pharisees, cleanse that which is within the cup and platter, but the outside of them may be clean also. So here we have the description of these Pharisees. We understand the Pharisees, that they were zealous for God's law. They made extra laws. They had all this all these things lined up so that they wouldn't fall into sin. Uh, and, and as a result of that, they made it the word of God of no effect. Jesus accused them multiple times of that. That your standard, what you're using is your standard. Your definition of what is righteous is completely different than the definition that I hold. They omit the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. He says, those are the things that you should have engaged in. Those are the things that you should have done. And the thing that I want you to see here is that with the Pharisees, their excess that they're accused of here was not that they were running to sinful indulgence necessarily. It looked very different. We think of the alcoholic on the street or the, the guy that's using drugs and, and is just strung out all the time. We see that as sin of excess. But the Pharisees had a completely different model for their sins of excess. Their legalism became their excess. I'm not going to do these things or we have to do these things. All it amounted to was excess of legalism, bondage. They would strain in a gnat and swallow a camel. Here are the important things, but man, those things are not the things that we're all about. We're more concerned about how you're dressing. We're more concerned about whether or not you're tithing. We're more concerned about uh, you know, how many times you show up for church services in a week. We're more concerned about those things. Those are sins of excess. It isn't bad to have a standard of dress. It isn't bad or wrong to say, hey, we need to be at church. Obviously, I agree that we should be a church, but when that becomes the standard of righteousness, we have a big problem. 
It's a sin of excess. Here is Jesus telling us that very principle. So as we think about these categorically, this list of the, 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 these works of the flesh, I don't know if you noticed, but we have works of the flesh and we have fruits of the Spirit. Difference. We're going to talk about that just a little bit next week. So we have first sins of excess, these things that would, that would line themselves out, and ultimately they displace God and His righteousness. They displace uh, where we stand, where our method and our procedure and our understanding, our comprehension, they affect all of those things, whether it's drunkenness, drug use, whether it's uh, just a giving over of myself to the lust of the flesh, I'm not even going to try anymore, but whether we fall into some other less recognizable form of excess, like legalism, it's all the same. Sins of excess. Next, and as we saw early on, we have sexual immorality. We have a, a category, categorization there of the first uh, first four uh, there in verse 19, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. The thing that we need to understand about uh, um, that category of sin is that the personal effect to you and I is different than other sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, he says, flee fornication. Every man that does, every, every sin that man does is without the body, right? It is manifest outside. It is something that we do to other people. It is something that we do over here. Uh, but he says, he that commits fornication sins against his own body. It is something that is affecting us. Now, don't misinterpret that. The sin is still against God, but the effect to you and I personally is different. And I think that he gives us some insight into why. He says in verse 19, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, we have this description that this is something you and I, as God's child, His holy possession that He has purchased with His own blood, that He has chosen to indwell with the earnest of the Holy Spirit, the promise of our inheritance, is equal to, in many respects, and illustrated by, in some respects, whether it's the tabernacle or the temple, it is the abode of God. You are Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. And so here what we find is that as we look through the, the Old Testament, that any time the enemies uh, or, or backslidden Israel desecrated God's temple, and they did it in two ways primarily, they would either neglect it, we just didn't take care of it, we didn't keep it up, or they would abuse it. They would do things in the temple that were not prescribed to be done in there. They did not respect the holiness and the sanctity, the set-apart nature of that temple. And in either case, God would consider it defiled. And no one could offer the acceptable sacrifices 
or the prayers, those things that were prescribed in there until the temple had been cleansed from its defilement. There was a direct effect upon them. They were somehow limited uh, in their worship of God because of the defilement of the temple. We find that even the priests had to go through ritualistic cleansing before ministering to the Lord. And that indicates that in that association with the world in any way brought defilement. Right? They had to keep it up. They had to maintain, as it were, the model and the standard that God has established. Now, under the new covenant, born-again children of God, you and I are indwelt with this Holy Spirit. We remember that when Solomon built the temple and they offered the sacrifices and everything, that, that, that they saw God occupy the temple. And everybody fell down. And it was this, this experience that is recorded in Scripture that in many respects for you and I as believers, when we accept Christ, we experience the same thing. It is an awe-inspiring. We fall to our faces in gratefulness and gratitude that God himself would fill us. Our bodies become his temple. And when we defile ourselves through sin or neglect of the Lord himself, we must seek cleansing. Or there has to be some restoration. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm, what I'm saying here. We are not separated from God. We, he didn't remove himself from us. He's not saying, I'm done with you. I haven't rejected you. We're, we're not at loss of salvation. They were still the people of God. But there were processes that they had to go through to re-sanctify the temple, this, which had been desecrated. For you and I, there's a process that we go through that we, by which we re-sanctify ourselves, as it were. That we would come to and we would set ourselves apart. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The process that we come to as believers to maintain, the, as it were, the, the, the sanctified purity of the temple of God, our bodies, indwelled in by the Holy Spirit, is that of confession. Jesus already knew on the cross every sin that was being paid for even the ones that we who weren't born yet hadn't committed, even the ones that he would that we would commit after we were born again, there's no surprise to him. He willingly paid for all of them. But we have this mechanism of confession that clears our conscience, it clears the air, it sets us apart. And as it says here, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We are repurified, as it were. Only the blood of Jesus Christ is power, powerful enough to cleanse our hearts and to make us fit to commune with God. We have this, this different effect in regard to sexual immorality than there is with other sin. Now, the repurification, repurification, that's a terrible term. This confession process whereby God cleanses us, is the same for all of them, whether it's sins of excess, whether it's immorality, whatever it may be, the process is the same. But what we have to realize is that there is some parallel here, and there is a distinction in God's heart and mind that is recorded in His Word, that we are affected differently 
by sexual immorality. When we defile our body, the temple of the living God. The difference for you and I should be something much more akin to what we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Rather than yielding our members uh, as servants to sin, as we would read in Romans chapter 6, we should lay down our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That we would take all that we are, everything that we have, and that we, this would be the sacrifice that we would put before him. When we engage in sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, those things, we are effectively saying that my body is my own, and I withhold from you, God, the sacrifice of myself. Ought not to be for you and I who are in Christ. Next, we have, categorically, we have idolatry. And so idolatry and witchcraft are, are two, they're related. They're, as, we, as we said, idolatry is anything that displaces God. Witchcraft is a league, whether it's real or pretend with the devil. And we see it manifest in different ways, whether it's drug, drug use, familiar spirits, fortune telling, um, any, anything in, in scripture to do with magic. But it's we understand that there is a demonic presence and force behind that. And so there is a league and a submitting to and an opening ourselves up to those things. I will just tell you that I'm, I am convinced that because I am filled with the Holy Spirit, because you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are not those that will be or can be possessed. There is no room, there is no space for darkness to dwell with the light that is indwelling you and I. So I don't think that that is something that happens to believers. I, I think that Scripture would bear that out if we took the, the time to study it. But what I am saying is that we can yield ourselves to those things. We can reap the consequence, as it were, in our homes and in our lives if we're not careful. So we don't want to displace God. We don't want to replace Him with anything. Um, Anything that would be created that is deified, anything that is created that we would put in the place of God is idolatry. Now, you remember that Satan himself, as, as we read in the Old Testament and talking about the king of Tyre and these other, but they're just illustrations of, G, of, of Satan and his desire to be like the Most High. He wanted to replace him. He wanted the same worship and admiration. He wanted to be in that place. He was his own idol, and not only that, he has tried to dupe uh, thousands and thousands throughout history to follow his same idol, to worship him. Anything that would be deified would be considered idolatry. In Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 23, that's where we find that definition. Romans chapter 1, verse 23. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Right, That is textbook, biblical definition of idolatry. We have to remember, even Satan himself, as powerful 
And as beautiful as we find his description was in the Old Testament, he is a created being, just like any other angel. Just like any of the angelic host. He's created. And whether we realize it or not, sometimes we open ourselves up to those things. We have to be very careful. We have to be watchful about those things. It's easy for us today to lower our standards and be entertained by those things. We find movies, we find books, we find all kinds of things that pertain to what would, uh, from a biblical definition, be considered witchcraft in many respects. And we allow it to entertain us. We allow it to uh, be, a, be something that we would enjoy. We gloss over, for the sake of entertainment, the indulgence of our flesh, that this is something that is contrary and forbidden by Scripture. Now, I will just say this, I will, and I'm not trying to give anybody an out. If we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, we need to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. There are opportunities in those things to instruct and to weed through and to be forced to deal with those things. However, if you're not taking those opportunities, I suggest that you see where your heart is at. We don't want to be those who would come as close to the sin as we could possibly get with actually, without actually, quote-unquote, engaging in it. I'm convinced that that would be making provision for our flesh. I think that is the liberty that we have in Christ being made an occasion for the flesh. I think it's simply an excuse to indulge the flesh. And we have to be watchful for those things. In Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, again, here's God giving the Ten Commandments uh, to the nation of Israel. He makes it very clear in the first few commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5, he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. God forbids idolatry. And whenever we indulge in it, whenever we engage in it, whether it's, whether it's a pretend or a real legal, when we're talking about witchcraft, whether it's I actually have created or, or allowed an idol in my life, it always is a God it is after an image that is acceptable to me. I get to be supreme in that because I get to determine what is right and wrong. I can establish a standard that makes me good. Idolatry takes a lot of forms. Anything could potentially become an idol for you and I. Whether it's going to church and look at me, I, this is the standard of righteousness, so I get to define that. It's a fleshly motivation. It's a desire to be recognized. It's a desire, whether it's prideful, whether it's uh, 
just soothing my conscience because I'm convicted by other things, but I can overlook those things if I'm engaged over here. It's idolatry. You're not your own God. It may not manifest in what we would perceive as quote-unquote worship. I don't see a lot of people that are in their driveways after they've just washed their car, you know, bowing down. And, but that becomes a priority and it becomes a consuming thing potentially. Or whatever it may be. If God is replaced as our sole sovereign by anything, we have succumbed to idolatry. We as believers have to be watchful, even though we are the children of God, even though we, we need to look at our hearts and motives and say, Lord, why am I engaged in this? Is this for your honor and your glory, or is this for my satisfaction? Have I allowed or created an idol here that replaces you? Next, we find this category, and most of these sins that, are, that we find in this chapter fall into this category. It is relational sin. It is, in other words, it is sin in how we would relate to people. We even remember that Jesus said the second commandment, the second greatest commandment, besides loving God with everything that we have and all that we are, is to love people as we would love ourselves. And so we have these, these uh, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, all of these things, envies, murders, all of those things being in, in relation to how we interact with people. And it demonstrates, ultimately, when we would fall to hatred or we would fall to emulations, this, this passionate jealousy over the good that other people have experienced. When we would fall to those things, it demonstrates an absolute lack of faith in God's sovereignty. It is selfish at its core. Why didn't I get that same thing? Why wasn't I considered good or right or whatever it is to be there? When we hate people, when we extend that kind of looking at those kinds of things, and just remember that not only do we have the, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'll come back to that thought in a moment, but it demonstrates no faith in God's sovereignty. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Maybe what we have to be content with is far less than somebody else. Maybe what we have to be content with is far more struggles in our life than we perceive other people to have. I want to suggest a couple of things to you. Number one, your perception of the struggles that you have versus the struggles that others have is probably completely wrong. You are not omniscient in any way, shape, or form. Therefore, you cannot know what the other person is going through, what struggles they may be having. You don't know what it looks like. You may have some insight. You may have a little bit of understanding, but you don't know the struggle that they're there, that they are in. So therefore, to compare it to your own is to put yourself in a position that would be reserved for only God, who is, in fact, omniscient. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when we think about our relationship, and I'm going to somewhat limit this to the body of Christ, 
uh, for our purposes this morning, but we understand that we are to love everyone. We read it earlier that we should, uh, as we exhibit, well, we're going to come back to that passage here in just a moment, so we'll, we'll come there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. In regard to the body of Christ and our relationship with one another, there is no room for hate. There's no room for envy or emulations. There is no room for, for being uh, seditious or being factious. He says, and those, <clears throat> verse 26, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or whether one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. We are one body, unified, completely and wholly in Jesus Christ. And that is, as we've been studying through the book of Ephesians, we find that that is sort of the key theme of the book, this unity in Christ. And then whether the, the you and I as individual members of the body with individual struggles, with individual uh, blessings, whatever the, the, the thing may be that somebody may be having trouble with in their relationship with you, or you may be having trouble with them in that relationship, we have to realize and we need to think about it the same way that God does. Right? I, he is sovereign. He has put us where we're at. We trust that He has established us to be exactly where we are so that He might bring about the best for you and I. And I think of Joseph, again, as we I mentioned him more than once this morning, but here is Joseph. He's got all of these brothers, and they look at him, and we see these relational sins, this hate, this envy, this, these emulations. We see all of those things, even murders conceived of in that relationship with him. Yet in the end, what do we find? God says in the end of in Genesis chapter 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good to the saving of many people. And we have that same reassurance in Romans chapter 8 that God works all things for good to those who are called according to His purpose. That here we are in as His people, and that we have no room to say that that person has it better or worse or easier or harder or, or, or whatever. I am more deserving than they are. Simply stated, as Scripture says, we should rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We should be content with the things that God has chosen to give us, whatever we may perceive them to be, knowing with full assurance that they are the absolute best that He has for you and I. And that without any question, we have all the grace that is necessary to go through that thing, to bear well the blessings that God has extended us. In Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, a bit of a long passage here, but he says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. And that dissimulation, that, 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 that just simply means that without any variance, right? It's not hypocritical. What you get from me is genuine and sincere. Let love be without dissimulation. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless them that persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not th high things, but condescend to men. 
of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much lieth with you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So here is a description of what we should be like as believers in relation to other people, both in the body and outside of the body. How we would serve them, how we would demonstrate the opposite, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, as we're going to get to next week, the fruit of the Spirit in our relationship with them. But if we're full of envying and strife and, and we're, we're trying, we're, we're factious, we're divided, we're picking sides at work and all of those things, then we are part of the problem and we are dealing in the flesh. Therefore, this is the takeaway. Therefore, all of this summed up, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap fires of coal on his head. And as we read earlier, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. In regard to these relational sins, as we think about them categorically, obviously each one of these might be or may not be pertinent to you at this moment, at this position, this season of life. However, generally speaking, the opposite of this, to love and to show that love towards others, should be regularly characterized in our hearts and minds and in the way that we conduct ourselves with people around us. He says in verse 21 as well, he says, they that that I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want to I clarify this because you and I as believers, and we talked about this, we have this struggle within us, this dichotomy, and we, we probably beat that horse enough. And, and so I bring this up because we may at some point fall to uh, hatred, or we might fall to and realize, boy, I've got some idols, or, or we may uh, even fall to sexual immorality in some way, shape, or form. We may have that struggle with the flesh. He is not saying that, hey, if you've done that the one time, then you can't be saved. Because if that was true, there is none righteous, no, not one, and we would none of us be saved. What he's talking about is the habitual practice of these things. We remember that, that, he, that this is in the, con, the context of walking in the Spirit, of what our habitual conduct, the way that we live day in and day out, what I choose to do, what I train myself and work with the Holy Spirit in my sanctification to bear the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Those, that is what I'm continually in pursuit of. If the works of the flesh are our standard method of operation, in other words, this is what categorizes our life and our interaction with people and with God more than, more frequently than, I'm just going to say it bluntly, it tends to indicate that we may not be saved. We may all have rough seasons in life. Absolutely. We may all have times in our life where we struggle a lot. 
The Bible says to examine yourself and see whether you be in the faith. And I'm not judging anybody here. I can only judge myself. I can only look and see that this is where I stand. These are, this is the reality of my struggle. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now we have this witness of the Holy Spirit that we've talked about in the past that would confirm and bear witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. In other words, we can know with certainty that we're saved. And, and whether or not the struggle with our flesh is simply a struggle with the flesh or whether it is the fruits of what is actually within us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Right? If we understand, if we, if we have been born again and we receive the Holy Spirit, then we are in the Spirit. We need to understand that because we are indwelled by Him. But He doesn't stop there. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of His. We have to work that out on our own. We have to see where we stand with God. And, and I'm not saying that anybody, and I'm not trying to sow doubt for anyone. But what I'm hopefully doing is letting the word of God come to bear upon our hearts and minds that we might see and, and take an account of where I actually stand with God. And if you can clearly say, man, I am born again. I have struggled with the flesh. But I know that I have the Holy Spirit. You're golden. But if there's doubt, work that out. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For as many as are led of the Spirit, they are the sons of God. For you've not received the spirit of bondage again into fear. But you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. In the life of the believer, while we may fail and fall to sin, it is never without conviction. So where there is no conflict, there's no opposition. Does that make sense? Where there is no conflict, there is no opposition. The Bible tells us in Galatians 5.17 that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There is a opposition there is conflict there is something there that would stand make us take account and say something is off but if we're not faced with that conviction in other words if we are not confronted with the conviction of our sinfulness and we find that our lifestyle is quote-unquote normal right that the works of the flesh are a normative thing that is a character characterization of us and it is in contradiction to God's revealed truth, we have to potentially conclude that we are lacking the operation of the Holy Spirit within us. We need to be honest about where we stand. And, and I'm telling you this in, in great hope that this doesn't apply to anybody, but we have to be honest about where we stand because it is literally life and death. It is the life of the Spirit of Christ in me or the law of the Spirit of Christ in me, or it is the law of sin and death.
For you and I as believers, we understand that it's not normal, that it isn't, shouldn't be normative of us. And we struggle against it. There is opposition. There is conviction. There is the work of God in our hearts and minds. He's talking about habitual practice. So if you've sinned and, hey, man, I've really blown it, just know that there is confession. And with that confession, there is cleansing. God hasn't removed himself from you and you haven't lost anything. There's great assurance and sureness in our position in Christ. That his atonement was more than is necessary, that it is more than adequate. Not only that, but he gave us a righteousness that is equal to his. And I'll just tell you that our, his righteousness is unchanging. And if your righteousness is equal to his, then your righteousness that has been conferred upon you by justification, by faith, is unchanging. We don't somehow become unrighteous. We're talking about habitual practice, and it should be cause for us to evaluate. Now, go back to verse 18. He says, but if you are led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. And I want to close with this thought this morning because we have liberty, liberty, liberty. That was for my wife. <laughs> the operation of the Holy Spirit within you and me as truth is confirmed, right? That's what's happening here. This conviction of our conscience. Where the Spirit, where we are led of the Spirit, we are not under the law. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Verses 13 through 15. Now, it's a parenthetical statement. It's In other words, it's in parentheses here. It's sort of interjected into this conversation. And he says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So here's, here, here is this liberty that we stand in as we walk in the spirit and we and as a result of walking in the spirit we are led down a path that does not engage and indulge the lust of the flesh we don't fall into that trap he's making this this comparison as it were here between those who are outside of in other words he's he's clarifying that there is sufficient evidence given to every man woman and child who has ever been born that god exists and that there is a standard of right and wrong and that God himself has established that standard. And he says, listen, you who are in the law, who, who are outside the law, these Gentiles who didn't have the law of God, they didn't receive it, that's anybody who's not a, not a Jew. He says, but they by nature do those things that are contained in the law. They don't murder. They realize that it's wrong to commit adultery. Lying is wrong. Stealing is bad. Right? Nobody told them those things, yet here it is normative, that this is the correct interpretation of life around them. And it says that they experience conviction, that their conscience, this understanding that God puts within us of what is right and what is wrong, will either accuse them 
or will excuse them. Okay, that's, that's all this passage is saying. Now turn with me a, a few pages back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Right? There is no excuse for any person that, that they wouldn't know. That God has put everything, and he, go, he goes on to tell them that even the invisible things from creation are a witness of who he is and his standards of right and wrong. That he is the only mechanism of righteousness by faith in Christ. All of that is true. We have this understanding of this is right and wrong, that God has put this innate understanding within us. Now, over time, here's what happens. As, as people separated from God, not liking the conviction that we experience, one of two things happens. One, we become very religious. In other words, we pursue God through the works and methods that we perceive would be somehow right to him. That's what religion is. It is man's pursuit of God. It is us trying to satisfy the requirements, probably the wrong requirements, because we have to have a righteousness that's equal to his, and we only get that by faith, right? So it can't be of works. But that's what it is. The other thing that happens is we so suppress our conscience that it never convicts us. We justify, as it were, the, the wrong things that we do to the extent that they become normal and no longer do we feel bad about engaging in them. Those are one of the two things that happens when we are confronted with sinfulness apart from Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. Either camp, either one of those two things, God can easily overcome. And he does so by the engagement of his truth. He sets us apart. The truth sets them free. The truth of it is finished in Christ. The truth of you are saved from sin in Christ. Okay, so here's here, here, that's where we're at. We have the operation of the Holy Spirit within us, his, the conscience convicting us. And as we read there in Galatians uh, chapter 5, if we are led of the Spirit, we are not under the law. We are, we are freed from the law. We experience the liberty that we have in Christ. No longer is there a works of righteousness required for us to be acceptable before God. We know that there is right and wrong. He's clearly made that plain in his word. And so therefore we stand without excuse and we choose to either acknowledge it or suppress it. In John chapter 3, as Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, uh, and this is... You know, the more that I study John chapter 3, the more that I realize that it is a master class on the gospel. And, and you hear people talk about that. There's a reason that John 3.16 is so substantive in Christian understanding. Because it sums up the gospel. Not only is the motive and the heart of God revealed in it, but the method of salvation is revealed in it. Not only that, but it gives us such insight into the heart of mankind. He says in verse 21, right? That you and I, as believers, we're not going to take one of those two camps. We're not going to come over here to religious practice, which is what the Judaizers are pushing on the Galatians. 
If you want to be right with God, this is what you have to do. Not only that, but we're, we're going to be sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit. We're not going to suppress it. We're going to take the truth that we are confronted with it, and we're going to acknowledge it. In John chapter 3, verse 21, it says that he that does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now, normally, we're, we're, we're using this to compare unbelievers and believers, those who wouldn't want to, that, that they experience a condemnation because they're unwilling to come to the light. They're unwilling because they don't want to be exposed. But for you and I who are believers, whether we are in sin being convicted by the Holy Spirit, or <clears throat> we are abs- we're walking in the Spirit and therefore not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, in either instance, our right response is that we would come to the, to the light, that we would come to Jesus, that our deeds may be exposed, whether they're good or bad. And ultimately, even as we submit ourselves to the, to the conviction and, and perhaps even the humiliation of acknowledging sin, our deeds are exposed that they are in the light, that they are wrought in God. We are submitted to him. Again, 1 John, because when we find that, as I said, it's a hard thing for us to come to because it does come with some hum- humiliation. It, it comes with, uh, it comes with the, the revelation to others around us. Right? We already know where we're at. God obviously knows where we're at. He says in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. We lie and do not the truth. Now, taking Jesus' words in John's gospel, in John chapter 3, right, that if we're going to walk in darkness, we're not going to allow things to be exposed. That we are going to submit ourselves to the power of sin, which is that secrecy, that trying to hide it. He says, no, if we have fellowship with him, If we are in relationship with God and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. We submit ourselves back to the bondage of righteousness by works. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, here's the thing. I want you to to notice something about this. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Who are we trying to hide our sin from? The one that that we're going to have fellowship with. What What we need to understand is that within the body of Christ, for you and I as believers, our right response coming and everything being revealed is that, hey, it's rot in God. As egregious a sin as we may have committed, that the body of Christ, as one member hurts, all members hurt. There is fellowship in that, and restoration, as it were. Freedom from the bondage of, I've got to hide this, I have to conceal this, when we bring it to the light. So as we confess things, we have to understand, and listen, I'm not saying that every sin that we commit needs to be confessed publicly. I'm a a big advocate for the circle of sin, right? Who I've sinned against needs to be the circle of confession. There's restoration within that. 
And I'm not saying to keep it secret necessarily. Your testimony, your witness of the faithfulness of God and his cleansing power and this restoration and fellowship as a result of all of that is very powerful. We don't have to hang our dirty laundry in the front yard. We can put it in the backyard, okay? You see, you understand what I'm saying? I hope everyone understands what I'm saying there. Verse 8, if we say that we do not, that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We are not going to attain a position of sinful, sinless perfection. We say that we don't sin, we deceive ourselves. We're unwilling to acknowledge the sin that we have in us. We're, we called it whatever else we've called it, but we're going to call it anything but sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the promise, that is the assurance that we have as believers. And I'll just submit to you that not in addition, but as way of clarification of this. There's an immediate forgiveness and cleansing of unrighteousness. It isn't that God has removed himself and stepped away, and now there has to be some process of reconciliation. We go through all of these things now. It is an immediate restoration of fellowship. He never removed himself from you, but you removed yourself from him. And I'm convinced that if we had some physical means where we could see the actual relationship, the proximity, as it were, of God to us in those moments where we are separated from him, he would be right behind us just waiting for us to turn around. And as soon as we turn around, we would encounter him face-to-face, toe-to-toe, with arms open wide. I think that is the most accurate description Maybe not the best description, but it's an accurate description of what that forgiveness and cleansing looks like. And all too often, we put this distinction that there is, well, I've turned around. Now I have to take all these steps back. I have to make myself presentable. I have to go through this process before I get back to the Lord. And we remain separated from him in our perception. And that's an incorrect way to think about it we are immediately and fully restored and cleansed because we never lost anything, because he was there. He never left us, and he never forsook us. We exist in the liberty that Christ has given us. We are not under the law. And as we are led by the Spirit, whether it's in conviction of sin, whether it's in, in as we're going to progress to next week, walking in the Spirit and bearing those fruits, uh, or whether it's the confronting and overcoming of the works of the flesh in our life. We are not under the law. We are operating in the liberty, the freedom that we have in Christ, the the law that we have been delivered from sin and death to the spirit of life, to the life of spirit of Christ. Romans 8 verses 1 and 2, verse 2 in particular, (laughs) whatever that says. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, be here this morning to open your word. Uh, Lord, and as there are many that have joined us from all parts of the world uh, virtually, Lord, we praise you and thank you for the opportunity that we might 
enjoy that communion over your word together, even though it may be at a distance. We praise you, Lord, uh, for your goodness. We praise you for your faithfulness. God, I pray that as we uh, just briefly discussed and look at look at the works of the flesh so that we may recognize them within us, that we might recognize them in the world around us, uh, Lord, that we might know better how to overcome them, that we might trust in your Spirit as he leads us in truth, as he brings us to the Word and brings the Word to bear within us, God, that we might be submitted to that process. Help us, Lord, by your grace to be those who would be bearers of fruit and not producers of works. We praise you now, Lord. We, I pray that you would keep those uh, that are not with us today until next week that we might enjoy fellowship with them, communion over your word yet again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.